Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. And today is, as has been mentioned, Palm Sunday. So the Sunday before Easter. So of course, Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about politics. Okay, now, you might immediately be nervous and think, what in the world would possess him to speak about politics in church and or on a Palm Sunday morning. Well, stick with me. We're going to explore both areas where as people of faith we're called to engage and also some cautionary notes. And you might think, well, why Palm Sunday for a topic like this, to talk about the intersection of faith and politics? Well, Palm Sunday, of course, derives its name from the events in uh, Matthew chapter 21. So open your Bibles and turn there. And we see in Matthew 21, Jesus is, as Megan reminded us and leading us in worship, uh, riding on a donkey or a colt, and the people are waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the images that I have in my mind when it comes to Palm Sunday are based on pictures that I see in children's Bibles of the triumphal entry. So the scene in children's Bibles is super orderly and almost cute. You know, the donkey is always very lovable and smiling and very cuddly, and the kids are always just very um, orderly, laying down things on the either branches or coats on the ground. Uh, no one's getting trampled. Um, the people in the background are very politely waving their palm branches so as not to hit or disturb the people next to them in worship. You know, it just makes it look all very, very neat and tidy and orderly as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. But if you stop to think about it for a moment, there's no way that it could have been as neat and tidy as the children's Bibles make it out to be. Because Palm Sunday was not an orderly event. It was not tranquil. It was not cute. In fact, it was much more like a wild, impromptu political rally than anything else. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and the text will come up on the screen when I get to verse 5. So Matthew 21, verse 1, says, Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem. They came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anybody asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and they will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, this prophecy is from the Old Testament, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and embedded in the imagination of the people that would have been there on that day, on Palm Sunday, was the fact that Messiah, the Savior, the God's anointed one, was coming. And when he came, he was going to come like a king, riding on a donkey. 
And so when they see Jesus coming, he's riding on a donkey, just like conquering kings would do when they entered a city. They immediately think to themselves, aha, I know what's happening here because Zechariah told us what was going to happen here. And so let's keep reading. They brought in verse 5, verse, uh, they brought the donkey and the colt. They threw their garments over the colt and Jesus sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them. Others cut branches from trees and spread them on the roads. And Jesus was in the center of the procession. And all the people around him, all were shouting, Praise God or Hosanna for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heavens. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered, right? Not calm, not kind of very docile. Oh, that's very nice and interesting. They were in an uproar because they were trying to figure this out. Who is this? They asked. Is he the king? Is he the one? And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, is the translation uh, that we would use, or praise God. Um, and we sing this now. So for us, sitting in a churchy setting, Hosanna is like, we put it into the category of worship. It's like a veneration and something that we use in songs and makes sense. But for the people there on that day, it wasn't a praise and worship song. This was a political statement saying, this one coming here right now, he is a revolutionary who will save us. Well, what's he going to do? Save us from whom? Well, for the crowd that day, they were crying this and declaring this because they wanted to be saved from the Roman governmental overlords. See, Rome was in charge at this point in time, politically. And so Rome taxed them very, very heavily and laid very heavy burdens on the people. And the Romans actually maintained a fully staffed military garrison in Jerusalem and had no qualms about using military force to squelch any rebellion that might pop up politically or otherwise. And so the crowd is making this big, bold political statement. This one is the one that's going to save us from Rome and from all of the tyranny and oppression. And the crowd is so excited. Their hopes and dreams for change, and they begin to foist those on to Jesus. And they take their garments and they toss them under the hoofs of this passing donkey, lest their king have to step in the mud or in donkey poop. You see, in this era, when a king goes through a coronation process, you would come and you would put your garment on the throne so to make a seat for the new king to sit on. And it's as if you're saying, I, I am your subject. You are the one who rules. I'm going to put something of mine underneath you as a symbol of that. And people are so excited to do this for Jesus. 
They're also chopping down palm branches, which think about it, that's not an easy task. The branches, palms don't grow near the ground. The branches grow on the top, so you've got to be really determined to want to get some palm branches. So they get there, and they start waving them all over the place. Now, this also is a political statement because a few years before this, there was a rebellion or a revolt in Judah. It was led by Maccabees, Simon Maccabee and his followers, and they were successful for a very short period of time of getting rid of the previous political overlords, the Greeks. And so when uh, Simon Maccabee came into Jerusalem riding triumphantly on a donkey, people gathered around him, and he was feted with palm branches and praise. And so the crowd immediately thinks to themselves, ooh, I know what to do here. When we have someone who's going to come and lead a revolution for us, I got palm branches, I throw my coat down, and we begin to declare that, yeah, we're going to get those Romans. We are going to get what we deserve, freedom. We are going to succeed. This person has come to help this revolt and lead us in victory. And so this crowd sees Jesus in a very particular way political light. He's a real populist figure, a man of the people, an outsider. He's from Galilee who's going to really shake things up in government. He's going to make Israel great again. (laughs) And so if we were to take Palm Sunday out of its first century context and plunk it down in our day and in our time, the crowds would be waving political placards and t-shirts and buttons saying, Jesus for president. This is not a calm, orderly worship service. This is a political rally. The original Palm Sunday is this clash between Jesus' ministry and his plans and his vision of what it means to be king and the people around him and how they want him to wield power and change culture. We're in a teaching series right now at Jericho called Your Kingdom Come, and we're asking the question, what is the kingdom of God? And when it shows up, what does it look like? How is it coming to us today? And there are always those who believe, like the crowd did on that day, that when the kingdom of God shows up, Politics comes along with it. The political processes is an evidence of God's kingdom coming and the wielding of power. And so whenever we're talking about kings and kingdoms, we have to ask ourselves the question, how does the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of God interface with the kingdoms of this world, the nations and nation states that so prominently define our current geopolitical landscape. But the question of the kingdom of God and the overlay of the kingdom of God on any specific kingdom or nation or place is really not a new challenge or question. People have been asking this all through history, even in the Old Testament. And one of the most intriguing examples of this from history is from uh, the story of the northern German city of Munster in the mid-16th century. And this story is actually part of our heritage as Anabaptists. Uh, Although, as you see, it's not a moment in history that we should be particularly proud of. 
So it's kind of hard for us who live in the 21st century to picture either the world of the 1st century or even the world of the 16th century because in our day and time, we have this um, high notion and very real of freedom of voluntary association, which is easy for us to imagine. I can belong to this and then not belong to it. But in the Middle Ages and throughout Europe at this time in history, you belonged to one of two things, either the Roman Catholic Church or if you were in a state or a nation that had broken away, like Germany had at this point, you belonged to the Lutheran Church. And so you were part of a state-sanctioned form of religious government. That was what you were born into. Your pastor or priest was your political leadership and enmeshed and vice versa. So, but in the early 1500s, in the early kind of fomenting of the Reformation was taking place, and people were coming to question this and this total overlap of religious and civil political authority. And throughout Europe, there were various attempts at reform. So we have Martin Luther and nailing his 95 Thesis on the door at Wittenberg. Uh, we have other ways that this has been expressed. But perhaps none was more radical than the expression that came to be in the early 1500s in the city of Munster under the early Anabaptists. So Munster kind of and northern Germany went through a, a war, the, the Peasants' War, and a group of radical Anabaptist preachers, those who believed that you should be rebaptized on confession of faith as an adult, so a voluntary choice to follow Jesus, not just you were a Christian because you were born into a nation that was a Christian, began denouncing religion, Catholicism, and they called for a return to biblical ideals about the equality of all people. And this was a message that was really well received by the lower classes in northern Germany. And so as this message began to go out from the city of Munster, a bunch of people began to move to Munster and say, yeah, I want to be associated with that kind of stuff, mostly from the lower classes. And they were listening to this radical new idea of teaching, and they then became a part of the city. And so with so many adherents now in the city, the radical Anabaptists decided that now was their time to make a political move. And so they put their candidates forward for the next cycle of elections. And lo and behold, because there were so many of them in the city, they won all of the seats of prominence, except for one bishop, whom they probably decided that they were going to chase by force out of the city and take over that church. And so they began to kind of see this movement arise where they were going to take control of the city of Munster and do what they wanted to do. And they began to openly identify Munster as the new Jerusalem. This was the place where we were going to, they were going to see everything that they read in the Bible come true in their day and in their lifetime. So they passed laws to make that happen. They made it mandatory that you would be rebaptized and you would be kicked out if you weren't. And then they um, started to enact uh, the radical dis redistribution of property so that they held all things in common. And they began to try and live this experiment out. But there were just a few problems with their vision that began to emerge. First of all, the former bishop whom they had chased out of town wanted his stuff back. And so he amassed an army because he had an army to amass. 
and he laid siege to the city of Munster. And so for a year, he cut off all access to the city, and the population began to be quite desperate. And so on Easter Sunday, 1534, the leader of the Anabaptists had prophesied that God's judgment was going to come on the bishop and on his army, and he was the new Gideon, and he was the guy to do it. So he and only 30 men went out against an army of thousands, believing that they were on God's side and that they were going to win, and they lost significantly. And he was beheaded, and they put his head on a stake and put it up and said, "Uh, rest of you in the city, anybody want to try this? This will also happen to you. Well, not to be deterred, those inside the city of Munster thought, well, that was a bad thing, but we can still keep going with our vision for this. And so they put a 25-year-old named John of Leiden in charge, and he was the new religious and political leader. And John began to justify his authority by claiming that he was seeing visions from heaven. He proclaimed himself the direct successor of King David from the Old Testament, and he began to walk around the city in royal clothing, demanding honor from the rest of the subjects and absolute power because he was in charge of the new Zion. And since there were at least three times as many women as men now in the town, he decided it would be a good thing to legalize polygamy. And so he took for himself 16 wives. Meanwhile, most of the people of Munster were starving as a result of the year-long siege, and after an 18-month resistance, finally one of them was a traitor, gave in, opened the gates, and in came the bishop with his army on June 24, 1535, and John of Leiden and several other prominent Anabaptist leaders were captured, tortured, and executed in the civic square in Munster. And just to make sure everyone was clear on who was now in charge, their bodies were hung from the steeples of the church in cages at St. Lambert's Church. And their bones were later removed, but if you visit Munster today, you can still see the cages that hang there. So needless to say, the Munster Rebellion, an experiment in the kingdom of God coming to a city, ended quite poorly. But its place in history is maybe not all that unique. Because there have been and will be other places where people attempt to fuse together in a one-in-one ratio, politics and the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And it was actually because of the state-sanctioned kind of unhealthy religious systems or perhaps religiously propped up state systems that people like the Mennonites and the Quakers and others fled and experienced persecution and eventually migrated to different places including North America. And then in North America, when we pick up the story, we have people like Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers declaring in the early days of the formation of America that we should build a wall of separation between the church and the state. And the reason that they wanted that is because they didn't want bad things like Munster to happen again in their setting. But we have to ask ourselves, is that really a solution? What happens when you take faith completely out of the public sphere and you make religion something exclusively private or interior? That's a voice that we hear in our day. Another voice that we sometimes hear in our day related to religious interface and nation state is people who cry out that Canada was, is, or should be a Christian nation or such and such a nation should be a Christian nation. 
And the question then becomes, what do we mean by that? Or what do those people mean by that? Do they mean that a nation who is statistically constituted of more people who are Christians? That's one possible definition. Or do they mean a nation that was founded on or governed by a set of principles that are lifted from a Christian or Judeo-Christian value system? Or do they mean something altogether different? Some people mean when they say that, that what they really need or want is to elect people or a party into political power who are Christians, and therefore the kingdom of God would be more fully realized in our day and time. And maybe because of experiences like Munster and their experiences of persecution at the hands of the state Anabaptists, and particularly Mennonites, have had significant questions and suspicion about the welding together of faith and politics, particularly as it relates to power, which Pastor Mike talked about a couple of weekends ago. Palm Sunday processions and presidential motorcades tend to make Anabaptists nervous. And I think we need to admit that maybe part of this comes from our own impulses and history, an impulse towards separatism and saying, whatever happens in the state, we've been subjected and, and various negative iterations of having that pressed into whether it's religious liberties or whatever that is, let's just keep our distance from that and do our own religious stuff over here and we'll let them figure it out and do their own thing. But what we need to really recognize is figuring out where those impulses come from. And when, what, what do we see in Scripture? And we see in Scripture again and again that God has a unique role or purpose or heart for the nations. Even our reading this morning in our life journaling in Psalm chapter 99 talks about, let the nations praise you, O God. Let the peoples of the earth praise you. And so again and again we see that there is a language that we have to wrestle with and say, what role do the nations play in the advance of God's agenda in the world? But it's a tricky question to ask because, again, when Psalm 99 was written in the context of the people of God in the Old Testament in Israel, how do we translate that then into the real world where state government in whatever form it takes is governed by very different principles than those which guide the members of the kingdom of God. So we need to ask the question, really, what are our duties as Christians when it comes to politics and the state? Is our duty just to say, you do whatever you want over there, we'll do whatever we will look after the religious element, religion goes here, other stuff goes there? Well, Article 12 of our Confession of Faith as Mennonite Brethren summarizes the way that we understand the teachings of the Bible in this way. We believe that God instituted the state. God has a purpose, a plan. It was God's idea for a level of authority to promote justice and to maintain law and order. Christians' primary allegiance, however, is to Christ's kingdom. Believers are called to witness against injustice, exercise social responsibility, and obey all laws that do not conflict with the Word of God. So, what does that mean? How would we live those kinds of convictions out? 
this begins to shape a little bit for us the understanding that there are defined and God-given responsibilities and roles that the state or government has. The state has been instituted by God for the good of society, to advance public well-being in all of its forms, and to establish and maintain a way or laws or structures that create the best possibility for peace and for human flourishing. That's the role of the state. And in our modern interconnected world, we rely on the state for all kinds of things. We rely on the state to take care of people who are poor and who are defend the weak. We rely on the state to regulate things that are bad and to promote things that are good, like health care and safe and clean drinking water, networks of transportation. But where we get into more challenges is when we begin to ask specific questions of, well, how are these things going to be lived out? And who makes decisions about those that it can create some tension for us as people of faith? So, for example, what if the government does things that they believe are promoting justice and law and order or spending money in a way that you or I disagree with? What's our response then as Christians? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. And here we get some guidance from the Apostle Paul on the topic of interacting with those in authority. And we need to remember that Paul's writing this to those still under Roman authority and law. So this is not uh, something where they have a fantastically wonderful government that they all love and appreciate, and creates all kinds of opportunities for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not nearly as friendly or peaceable or democratically as our current democratically elected municipal, provincial, or national governmental structures that we live under today. And yet, Paul still is giving them a word on how to interact with those in authority. So he says this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, "'Everyone must submit to governing authorities.'" For all authority comes from God. In other words, the authority structure of government, because government was God's idea to promote peace and justice and create human flourishing, the idea that there's authority invested in government comes from God. And those placed in positions of authority have been placed there by God, so anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. So first thing here to be clear about is, and you guys know that I'm famous for saying this, don't hear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying in that phrase, those who are in positions of authority have been placed there by God, that God is somehow sitting up in heaven going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I wonder who should become the next ex, you know, president or prime minister or leader of this party or mayor of that town or all of those kinds of things. And that somehow this is a surprise to Jesus when this happens. Or that God is somehow saying, oh, that one goes to church. Well, if they must love me more then, I should help them win in the next election. No, Paul's not saying in this setting, about the individual. He's speaking about the system. He's simply saying structural authority is something that God has instituted for our well 
being. And so those who occupy positions of authority within that structure are there because God has put a structure in place that allows for that. The idea of government having authority and us being under it is God's idea. Now, the government structure or form doesn't always take the form that we love in person or that we believe would have the best possibility of human flourishing. And the person or people who occupy the position of authority are not always people that we love or agree with. And they don't always do the things that we think that they should do. But political authority itself is a derived authority because government was God's idea. So then Paul continues his argument and says, if government is God's idea, what do we owe the state? And he continues in Romans chapter 13 and says, we actually owe the state submission. So we owe, pay our taxes for the same reason. Government workers need to be paid. They are serving God by promoting the opportunity for peace and for justice and for human flourishing in what they do. So we need to give to everyone what we owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So there's at least four things that we owe as Christians to obligations that we owe to our nation or to the state. The first one that's clear, and this comes to us from 1 Timothy chapter 2, is that we're to pray. We have an obligation, a command to pray for those in authority. A few months ago, Pastor Wally and I were uh, away for a day of prayer and planning, and we felt impressed that we should pray for our local municipal leaders, council and mayor. And we felt that we should let them know that we were praying for them. So, I sent an email and said, hey, we're praying for you. Your inbox is probably filled with lots of people who complain about lots of things all of the time. You know, we're not asking anything from you. We're just letting you know we actually uh, respect and honor that you're in a position of authority here in our city. And we want you to know that as people of faith, we, we believe that we're called to pray for you. And so if there's anything we can pray about that's going on in your life, we would love to do that. And so we just wanted to send you a note saying we appreciate your service. And one of the counselors wrote back, and she said, I've been in public service for years and years and years. Never in all of those years have I received an email that told me that anyone was praying for me and did not immediately attach something that they were praying that I would be out of office next time, that I hated them or anything like that. She's like, it's never been a compassionate email. There's always a request attached to it. There's always something, you know. And she said, just that you... Are praying for us is significant. And so we're instructed to pray for those in authority. And this applies at all levels. Pray for those who are in charge of your school. Pray for our municipal leaders. Pray for those who are running in the provincial elections this coming month. Pray for our national leaders by name. Pray that they would make wise decisions. Gang, they're in challenging roles. Leadership in our world comes with a whole set of challenges. And so we're to pray for them because that's what we're instructed to do. They have lots of pressures on their family and their inner world that a ton of us don't live with those things. And so praying for them and praying for those 
in authority is something that we owe and have a responsibility to do. Second thing we owe as an obligation, Paul reminds us, pay your taxes, Romans 13, 6, because the government has a mandate to advance well-being, to establish and maintain structures that create the best possibility for human flourishing. And that takes money. And so, Whatever system that they set up to do that, and different governments throughout history set it up in different ways, whether you agree with it or not, you know, all of those things, this is a responsibility that we have. Having a safe food system whereby Cheryl Weens gets to work in a lab and check for bad bacteria so it doesn't get out into the food system and poison all of us is a good thing and takes money. Having Denise McFarland and her well-trained team of nurses when you go to the hospital and check into the maternity ward to give birth is a good thing, and it takes money. Having David Abair as the principal leading a team of educators in a school, making a difference in the lives of young people, training up a next generation, that's a good thing, and it takes money. Having police on the streets and paved roads and libraries, etc., 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 takes money. You could go on and on and on. So as Christians, we're reminded to participate in supporting and enhancing these structural and logistical realities that help make these and other good things happen. And so Paul just says, hey, listen, in order to get that stuff done, you got to pay your taxes. And though it could be painful and the deadline for submission is quickly looming, we're reminded we should participate in this way. Third thing we owe as an obligation to the state, we, and this one gets trickier, we're to treat those in authority with respect and honor. And this is hard work, particularly when we disagree fundamentally sometimes with some of the decisions that are being made or the policies that they advance or even the behavior of an individual leader. But we need to remember that treating someone with respect that's in a position of authority does not blindly mean agreeing with everything that they do or say. You can still respect someone in leadership while advocating for something completely different than they believe as their convictions. So, for example, this past week, I was reading an article in the Globe and Mail where our finance minister articulated a rationale for doing more with less when it came to foreign aid and spending. And I thought to myself, I disagree with this. What should I do? And I thought, well, at this time in history, I think we should be increasing the money personally that we spend on foreign aid, not only here in Canada on ourselves, but to help other people who are less fortunate in different parts of the world. And so I thought, okay, if I wanted to make that happen, how would I do that? I don't know. I don't know. At least I would send an email saying, hey, I think that, you know, I read your article, disagree, here's some thoughts and suggestions about maybe, you know, where things maybe could be different. So I cc'd my MP on that, and my MP and I got into a very respectful conversation and open dialogue about the spending priorities of the Canadian government. And so he and I differ where we think that those should be. I said, here's a bunch of things that I really agree with and think you guys are doing a fantastic job. Here's a bunch of things that I would do totally different. And I get that it's way more complicated than me sitting and typing my email and all of these things. And so he said, okay, well, I take that into consideration and, you know, we've got this, this way for you to engage. There's going to be open houses, come to this, come to that. So I said, okay, fair enough. We can 
respectfully disagree, but I can still make sure in my email and in what I'm asking for, the tone that I do it in, all of those things, I can still treat those in authority with respect because and honor them for the role that they play. But the tone that we take here, I think, matters. If your email or your call or your online posting is shrill, personally attacks a person as stupid, dumb, or wrong, debases them, marginalizes them, you're not acting with respect to those in authority. And oftentimes, because sometimes people with particular religious convictions feel like they're not being heard, and so then they think, well, we should band together with other people that share my convictions and get louder so we can ratchet the volume up. And sometimes with the turning up of the volume, the authority and the, res- the respect and honor gets turned way down. And the question that, as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, when you post something on Facebook, when you engage with somebody You need to ask, is this a respectful way to conduct myself? Can I still respect and honor a person who disagrees with me and still express my convictions and opinion? Much more can be said about that, but if you want respect, you have to give respect where it is due. And again, that doesn't mean that the person in the position of authority is acting in a way that even demonstrates that you should respect them. If there are scenarios like that, they need to be called to account. But we do so in a way that still demonstrates respect for the position of authority that they occupy. The last thing we owe is an obligation of Christians to the state. Paul's clear in Romans 13, just obey the law of the land. This brings up the question, though, what if the law of the land is not in line with the convictions that I would hold as a person of faith? And this is a unique challenge. So I want to sound a couple of cautionary notes for us as we respond today. And the first one is that there are limits to obedience and submission. Jesus, when he's presented with the coin and they're trying to trap him, should we pay taxes, should we not? Jesus says, what's owed? If you owe something to Caesar, the government, those in charge, you need to give it to them but you also owe things to God. And so don't confuse those two. Do not give to Caesar that which belongs to God. And so we need to understand that there are times when there's a limit to obedience and submission. When the state makes a request of you as a Christian that in good conscience you cannot comply in, then you've reached a limitation point on obedience and submission to the states. Because to give ultimate loyalty to the state is actually idolatry when our primary allegiance and citizenship is in heaven. When the demands of the state conflict with the things that God calls us to, the instructions of Jesus to love my neighbor, then I need to respectfully articulate this, stand up for what I believe, and also be willing to suffer whatever consequences come as a result of that. So there are limits to obedience and submission. The second note is beware of overbearing forms of nationalism, especially those that fuse religious overtones or undertones into them. We were in the States a couple of years back on the 4th of July, and we went to church, and the pastor was so enamored with the God bless America mantras that I was actually unclear 
as to whether I was at a political rally or a church service. If you cannot tell the difference between those two things, you're on the path to Munster and a whole lot of trouble. There's always going to be division and distinction between the kingdom of God, its values, its priorities, the vision and lived realities, and the priorities and values of a given nation or given political party. So dressing up politics or political platforms in Jesus' language or attempting to pander to religious people as a special interest group is a bad idea because it fosters a kind of nationalism or tribalism that begins to confuse in people's minds who Jesus is and what Jesus is about and who Christians are and what certain Christians stand for are all about. And the Gospels make it clear that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, and it's not an earthly kingdom. When Pilate asks him, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is why Jesus ultimately rejects the crowd's invitation on Palm Sunday because he's not interested in being a Messiah who came to establish a Jewish political state. He was one who came to suffer. He came to die and atone for the sins of the world. And so Jesus allows the crowds to, to, to chant, save us, but it takes on a very, very different meaning for Jesus. And it's why then we sing it and declare it because we are asking for something fundamentally different. We're asking, Jesus, would you save us from the power and, and penalty of sin and death and evil? Would you rescue and redeem us? And so, if you're here today and you've never cried, made that cry and declaration and said, God, I trust you. I want to embrace you as king, as Lord, as leader of my life. Save me, rescue me from myself, from guilt, from shame, from the sin that binds me. Today is your day. And we have prayer teams that would love to walk through you, that process with you. Last cautionary note to sound. That we don't put up that wall of separation perhaps as firmly as some of our Mennonite forebears did. Because there is a place to respectfully participate in the political process while recognizing its limits. Because we want to make sure that we advocate as Christians, there's some values and some things that we share in common with the goals of the state. We want to advocate for the well-being of all people. We may have different visions of that, but we need to let our voice be heard in the conversation about what well-being would look like for people. So, for example, this summer we'll be on sabbatical. And one of the things that we'll do when we're in Tanzania often is meet with political leaders. And we have opportunity to remind them of the biblical principles of working for justice to promote peace and safety for people living with genetic condition of albinism who get marginalized as a result of that. And so here in Canada, there's ways to engage the process. For example, a group here at Jericho worked within the governmental process of the Canada's resettlement program to bring a family here to Canada from Syria a way that we expressed our alignment with what we believe as true of the values that would be shared between the kingdom of God and the nation of Canada, a care and compassion for people who are experiencing something horrific. And so 
Ultimately, we don't trust, though, in political processes to save or bring about the ultimate vision, the restoration of human hearts and all of creation into a right relationship with their creator. That's God's job. And the structures of government are never going to ultimately accomplish that. Because one day, like we've sang about already today, every earthly king, every earthly kingdom will pass away and yet the Lord and his throne will still be established in heaven. He rules over the kingdoms of this earth, over the nations, and his kingdom and his rule and his authority will never end. And so until that day, we got to wrestle with the fact that we live as dual citizens. Whatever your passport says, whether it's a Canadian or U.S. or other passport, that's one part. But your other citizenship is as a, king, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And your primary and ultimate allegiance is always, always, always to that citizenship. Not to the state or to government or to society. And so let's pray together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and they'll lead us in song response. Father, we thank you uh, for the things that you have given and instituted for human flourishing. God, we recognize that one of those things is government and we recognize that this gets messy and conflicted and hard for us to figure out. And so we come to you simply again just expressing our humble need for wisdom. We are not always going to get this one right. We're going to get shrill at times when we should be more patient. We are going to speak in anger when sometimes we should speak with forgiveness and moderation. We're going to cross and get things confused and other people will be confused sometimes. And so, God, we need your mercy and your grace in this. We need to come to you yet again and acknowledge our humble dependence on you. We also need to acknowledge your lordship and kingship. And so we come and say, God, you are the one ultimately who will, who has, who is, and who will save us. Your kingdom has come. We want to welcome it as full and active participants as we can. Guide us with wisdom and insight as we do that and surrender to you yet again, our Lord and our King. Amen. One of the ways that we express this here at Jericho is by responding in song. And so you can also just do that uh, by responding in physical posture. If you want to kneel as we worship, we would invite you to do that. If you want to stand, uh, our prayer team will be available at the sides and at the back. If you've come with something on your heart today, something going on in your life that you want us to pray with and for you about, we'd be pleased to stand with you in that. And so let's respond as God calls us and gives us an invitation.